This is what you say in English. Every week, you will listen to Frank's professional advice on speaking for exam preparation or for your personal development. You will get valuable advice on how to use grammar, vocabulary, discourse, and pronunciation. This is Season 2, Episode 17. everybody and welcome to another year with what you say in English. Last year we ended up with the holidays, with the holiday season for 2021 and now we're in the year 2022 which is an incredible, It's I hope it's going to be an incredible year and as usual you know when we have, when we make our own new year resolutions and I hope that you've made a lot of plans for this year as well. On my part, I'm very happy that you're joining me again in my journey with my podcast and, you know, in my learning process as well. And I'm very happy to continue with the series of podcasts that I started last year. I only released two episodes in which I talked about the different uh, myths about learning English. Well, not only learning English, but I spoke about learning languages in general. And today we're going to continue with the following part of this series of podcasts. In total, it's going to be four, and I hope you can just stick with me until the end. And after we finish with this series of podcasts, we will continue with the different aspects of what speaking English entails. And I have a few plans, you know, have uh, one analysis to do, and, you know, several other things that are coming, and I'm just very happy that you're joining me. So the first question that I'm going to tackle today is actually question number seven from the questionnaire that I posted of a few weeks back. And question number seven says, written language is superior to spoken language. And the truth is that written language is probably the most important human development in the last five or six thousand years. Before that, we're speaking languages that were in essence just like the ones we speak today, uh, though of course with, you know, very different words. The relatively recent appearance of written forms of language means that language acquisition for virtually all of our history as a species of animals um, has taken place in the absence of written language. I mean, think about it. Uh, we have lived most of our history not writing languages. I mean, we've been speaking languages since, you know, we kind of developed it. In fact, even the notion of the recency of, of uh, writing in the species is thoroughly deceptive. I mean, it's it's tricky to think about it, since the vast majority of the species didn't have access to it until less than 150 years ago. I mean, think about it. 400 years ago, not everybody had access to learning how to read and write. I mean, you could perfectly live a normal life without being able to write. And actually, in the Middle Ages, uh, one of the reasons religions became so popular was that they started telling the Bible stories through theater. I mean, when you analyze the history of 
uh, Renaissance uh, theater, for example, they told the stories from the Bible um, using theater. And of course, that was a way of promoting, I mean, that was promoting spoken language. And people did not have access, people could not even read the Bible. One of the advances that the, the pilgrims, you know, the people who migrated to the United States uh, back in the foundation, you know, when they, when they started the new nation in the Americas, was that the Puritans that started, uh, you know, uh, developing in the New World, in America, you know, of course, back back then it was not called America, one of the changes that they, they established and the influence they had in the English language was that they wanted to make English a, a more simple language, and they wanted everybody to read and write. And of course, this was back in the 1600s, 1700s. I mean, we're talking about 400 years of our history in which this kind of education was accessible to more people. Before that, only rich people had access. I mean, people who were tied to religion, of course, people in the nobility, people, you know, kings and queens, and, you know, all the people in the highest spheres of uh, social status had access to education. For over 97% of the time, writing systems have existed. They've been at the almost unique property of the privileged elites from royal, aristocratic, and priestly classes. If you can read a book, you are obviously highly literate. It's probably hard for you to imagine your life without reading and writing. But although we now take these skills so much for granted, we are still regularly judged on the basis of our command of different forms of literacy. Increasingly, Education and job opportunities are closely tied to evaluations of candidates' skills as readers and writers, and the economic prospects for those who have not mastered desired forms are not ideal. I mean, this is, this is the kind of world that we're living right now. And while the presence of print literacy in physical or hmm, virtual forms has greatly increased around the world, Demands on written language abilities have also increased. And so it is still the case that over, and this is a data from the UNESCO, over 770 million adults are categorized as illiterate, according to the UNESCO figures. I mean, I got this from, from, the, from their website. And despite its obvious importance in our lives, however, uh, we need to keep in mind that writing is just a way of making language physical. It's a modality of expression like uh, sign language, pretty much, and like, you know, speech in itself, rather than constituting a language in itself. Of course, its uh, durability and wider scope of audience give it many advantages as a modality. Remember that we have been able to record history. I mean, the, the ability to record history has been paramount. And actually, um, when you analyze history and prehistory, I mean, when we think about prehistory, we normally um, call it prehistory because before the invention of the of the writings or the discovery of the right or whatever, I mean, it's before the writing was established as a medium of communication of recording. That's when prehistory uh, starts. You know, from from that moment backwards, that's what we call prehistory. But remember that these very features also make it a powerful tool of social 
coercion and control. And given that access to the modality has been so long in the hands of those with power, this, of course, leads to the belief that their way of representing the language is the language. In fact, written texts have only been recently had an influence on how the language faculty is transmitted in our species, and only in some societies. As children develop the spoken, signed, and written language practices of those around them, many of them do so independently of the great dictionaries, uh, style manuals, and usage guides of their national elites. So to answer a question, no, it's not superior to spoken language. It's just another way of expressing yourself. Um, I would say that even though that we learn our first language by exposing ourselves to, to it, you know, in the, in the family, friends, and, you know, all everything that surrounds us, at this day and age, I would not dare say that um, spoken language is far superior. I mean, it is. I mean, in a way, everybody speaks a language and um, they need the language to communicate. But in a way, it's something learned. It's something that you acquire from the people around you and the people, you know, in which the people you have a constant contact with, you know, like... But in a way, I mean, they're just different ways. I mean, one is not superior. And the mistake is that people, and, and this is true, people tend to apply all the rules that we have for the written language to the spoken language. And this is something that people need to understand, that the grammar that we use for spoken language is not the same as the grammar that we use for written language. And this is something that a lot of uh, many teachers know and experts and linguists. And in my case, for example, I always tell my students that it's not just because you see it there. I mean, that's a grammar rule. And, and when you hear other people and native speakers of different uh, varieties of English speak, I mean, they realize that not all the grammar rules that they, they learned in the language school apply to spoken language. And that's that's a thing. I mean, spoken language is one thing, written language is another thing. And no, definitely written language is not superior to spoken language. Now regarding question eight, English grammar should be followed strictly. Anything that doesn't conform to grammar rules is incorrect. And and I didn't talk about the the statistics I had from for the previous question. In the previous question, mostly people agreed with me and, and agreed with what, you know, research says about this. And in this question is no different. I'm um, actually I think it's understandable because it's like an extension of the previous question. But this is this question goes to all the grammar Nazis in the world. <laughs> which, funny enough, I used to be one of them. So according to the the questionnaire that I that I posted, the great majority of the people agree with me, and many of them. I mean, I would say that selecting four points, which was a 34.3%, 97 people answered this. So I would say that the great majority, more than 50% of the people agreed that English grammar should not be followed, followed strictly speaking. And when you think about it, there are many grammar rules that we actually don't follow anymore. And, and they, they used to be considered important grammar rules if you wanted 
to be respected. For example, never end a sentence with a preposition, and we do that all the time. I mean, in English, it's very common, uh, even though that in probably writing, it's not, you know, very well seen. That you don't say, for example, who were you talking to? Or, for example, never start a sentence with a conjunction, you know, like and, but, you know, because... And, and things like that. Or, for example, never split infinitives. When I was a little kid, I was told that you that I should never split infinitives. You know, if you've ever seen the TV show Star Trek, uh, in the introduction, you will hear, I think it's the, the voice of Captain Kirk say to, to boldly go where no man has ever been to, you know, like to boldly go. So using an adverb, splitting an infinitive. And that was a grammar rule that nobody uses anymore. I mean, it's it's completely acceptable. Or, for example, never use who when you should be using whom, you know, when, when there's a difference between the object and the subject in the sentence. It's, you know, we don't really pay attention to those rules anymore because it's, you know, people just make themselves understood. And using, for example, that they is not a pronoun and, and, and things like that. I mean, we are living in a world in which I'm not trying to say that everything goes, but I would say that just saying that grammar has to be followed strictly doesn't make any sense. And if you think about it, that's what exactly happened to languages like Latin, for example, the Latin language. I mean, it became extinct. I mean, now, for example, we don't, I mean, we don't have, you know, any, Latin is not considered a living language anymore. It's it's become a dead language. I mean, it's only used in the church and, you know, and even the, the Latin used in the church is not really the Latin that people used to speak back then in those times. So, no, I mean, I would say that grammar should not be followed strictly, of course. You have to make yourself understood and you have to control the grammar as much as possible, you know, as other proficient speakers of English, you know, C1, C2 learners of English or native speakers or any role model that you have for your learning ability. Now, regarding the last point that I'm going to be discussing today, which is using a translation approach to learn English is a mistake. I got mixed results because the great majority of the people, most of them agreed in number three, which means that they whether agreed or disagreed with it, the, the lowest numbers were one, which is completely agree, 10% of the people. And 5%, sorry, number 5, which is 11% of the people disagreed, completely disagreed. But the great majority was in number 3. And it was it was like a pyramid. It was it, It's fun to see because, you know, it's it tells me that people don't know what to say about this. People are a little bit indecisive. I mean, they might say that it's good, that it's uh, not so good. And the thing is that when we talk about translation there there's always something to say about it and you know when when it comes to the grammar translation approach a lot of language schools have a very very strict policy when it comes to it since the beginning of my teaching career the use of own language instruction has been regarded as a methodology that should be avoided at all costs the idea of using learners' first language to achieve understanding of the second language was contrary to the more communicative approach that seems to dominate today's world. The reason why the use of translation has fallen out of favor 
may have come from the hard criticism of the, of its limited scope, which, I don't know, in my view, may have tarnished the valid practical applications of translation in general. And honestly, I've done I've done research about this. Actually, when I when I did my Delta a few years back, back in 2017, the experimental class that I, I had to do was about translation, because uh, as you already know, I'm bilingual. I speak uh, Spanish and English, and I've always been intrigued by the idea of using translation. My being brought up in a fully bilingual environment has definitely shaped the way I look at translation. There are experts who actually point out that bilinguals interpret words differently from the dictionary translations of the same words, which are, you know, defined both by their physical characteristics and their habits, attitudes, dispositions, and interactions towards the words. That means that when we think of, of, of a word, there's a there's an emotional load. And in my case as, as a bilingual, looking at, at the perspective of a word from two different languages, I can and could completely understand the differences in connotations and denotations of, of the same word. In the same way, when I compensate for the lack of knowledge in one language, for example, if there's something I don't know in English, I interpret the concept from Spanish. And I sometimes encourage my students to do the same. And I think it facilitates the understanding of challenging grammatical structures in, in English. However, I would say that compensating may not necessarily be translating. Uh, and that's something that I've always made sure, which may be the reason why I never based a lesson on exact translation. I always wanted to explore new ways of promoting you know, the way in which learners could be more autonomous, independent, and, you know, in, and, and the reasons why I did some research about this was because of this. But before I explain all about the grammar translation, I mean, like using grammar translation, I mean, this used to be a legitimate approach to teaching English. The grammar translation method, which was uh, called also classical method, it was, I think it was also called the Prussian method. It originated sometime, some point in the 19th century as a derivative of the method of teaching Latin and Greek. Learning occurred, this is interesting, learning occurred when students translated and back translated literary works, hoping that they would acquire comprehension of the target language by finding similarities and differences with their L1, you know, their, their first language. This approach mm, dominated the English language teaching landscape for the most part of the 19th century until the mid 20th century, when it was displaced by the direct method or natural approach. I mean, in this this is in which they were trying to imitate the way you learn your first language. You know, like no English was used and everything was in English. Which, you know, favored listening and speaking through demonstration and imitation. You know, you had to imitate instead of translating texts. The main features of the grammar translation could be summarized in, in three main ideas. The main focus was reading and writing. You know, in, when you translated, you basically learned reading and writing. And the final objective in a classroom was to enable students to understand literature and benefit intellectually from, from such understanding, of course. Little or no attention was paid to speaking or listening. 
in a classroom, for example, they basically, it was just the listening instructions from, from the teacher. The sentence was the basic structure to be studied and through which knowledge is you know, acquired, vocabulary was considered. And this is the most important thing. Through a selection of words used in the text being studied and would be learned in lists with equivalences in, in the first language. I mean, people had to learn very long list of words. Most of the class would be taught in students L1, you know, the first language, with a deductive presentation of the grammar. Yeah, topics and the rest of the time would be devoted to sentence translations into and out of the target language, you know, translating and back translating in English. And accuracy would be extremely valued. Now, more recently, translation has been rescued from ostracism by many experts, such as Alan Cook or Philip Kerr, for example. They have rescued the the grammar translation method and I think they've gave, they've given it a twist, a very, I would say, very creative twist to grammar translation. And I'm going to tell you how and why using grammar translation can be beneficial for students. First of all, students are influenced by their mother tongues. I mean, the first language that they, le they learn. The idea that a language must be studied in isolation may be useful for some students, but I would say that the first language will shape the way we think and, and to some extent, the use of the foreign language. For instance, this becomes evident whenever you're reading or whenever you're writing in another language, in the second language, you are constantly adjusting meaning if you have a first language and you always want to like find a way in which you can say the same that you wanted to say in your own language and you know in english another point is that translation is a natural activity already happening in the real world many many learners make use of it in different situations for example in offices banks shops airports whenever people have to watching tv films so I would say that promoting activities in the classroom in which students can also depend on their language would, would only seem natural. I think when people travel or now that we're using internet and uh, the, the world has become a more globalized, I mean, world. And now people use Patreon, people use different Twitter and, and of course, all communication is, is done in English. And it's very natural that people would resort to translating all the time. I mean, it's only natural. I mean, if people do it in their day-to-day -day lives, I think it's only natural that it can happen in the classroom. Also, language competence is a two-way system. In what way? Because in many situations, learners will have to need to communicate both ways, into and from the foreign language. This is what we call mediation. And the common European framework for languages has included mediation as part of the descriptors of, of language proficiency, being able to communicate in and out of the language. And the only English approach does very little to empower students to meet the demands of a globalized environment. I mean, I think that if you're able to communicate from English into English, into their you know students own language is is essential and people will will definitely have to do this many course books are starting to include mediation activities i've got lots of friends who are materials writers and and they are including mediation activities 
in their course books, in their materials. And I think this is only natural. Also, translation is not rigidly bound to literature as it used to be. You know, in the beginning, people used literature to, you know, trans to translate, you know, like translating the classics. But today, everything is susceptible to be used as a source of, you know, for translation. And, and what is more, translation can provide students with the necessary tools to cope with the a more difficult, authentic material. And, and I would say that finally, it is highly useful and flexible. I would say that using translation activities, for example, in the classroom would promote a lot of collaboration, speculation, discussion, since there is rarely a, a, a right answer. I mean, when you translate something, you can have so many interpretations. Students can actually work in groups in, in oral discussion. You know, translation can help tackle form, meaning and use of the language systems I would say more efficiently, especially when students have very little time for instruction, you know, that they don't have a lot of time during the week and then you know, to you know, go to classes. And, and I would say that using translation sometimes can actually save time. And even allowing students to discuss these things in their own language makes the knowledge settle more, I would say, with strength, because the whole idea is not, it's not only that you you can speak the language, but you can reflect about the language. And of course, when you improve and, and you go, you advance in your language proficiency, you will be able to do it in the second language. That, that's the whole point. So in, in a conclusion, I mean, from a from a learner's point of view, translation can actually help them develop autonomy and, and learning awareness. Considering that students already attempt free translations outside the classroom, I would say that tra doing translations or using translation in the classroom will definitely provide them with better tools to do it more efficiently. I would say that also, it would provide students with the opportunity to assess their ability to produce accurate language regarding form, meaning, and and the use of, you know, a comparative analysis. Students should, should be conscious of the grammatical rules of the target language, you know, in, in this case, English. And of course, you know, collaborating. I mean, we live in a collaborative world and learners will be able to contribute to a sense of cohesion by exchanging knowledge and, inf and information. So in conclusion, I would say I don't see any reason why grammar translation should be avoided in, in the classroom. And in, in general, I would say that when, when it is used effectively with a reason, I would say that it's highly beneficial and definitely would help people a lot, you know. Otherwise, we wouldn't have translators, you know, people working in the translation business. And it's a very profitable business, I would say. I mean, people who work, for example, at the UN, the United Nations, people who translate texts and documents and, you know, sworn translators, you know, that translate legal documents. I mean, they make a lot of money and it's not an easy job. Because when you translate, for example, you have to consider so many things. You really have to know the two languages in and out to make good translations. So I would say go ahead. I mean, I would say use it, use translation and, and, and see the benefits that I'm actually telling you about here. So this is the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for joining me this week and in this new year, this new adventure. Next week, we will be finishing with the 
the series of podcasts and I will cover the last three questions. Thank you very much to everybody. And remember that I will be telling you about the new system for the takeIELTS.net because now it's called Preptical and it's they have a new approach in, you know, with, with the teaching and preparation for the IELTS exam. And I will also come back to the Cambridge exams as I used to. I just felt that I needed to cover these points, you know, because it's it's a common thing that comes appears again and again in the different forums where I take part and in my classes and and I think I, I will just just save time and you know whenever people have something to say about it I will just tell them you know go ahead and listen to my episodes about it and then we will talk about it so thank you very much next week I will f be finishing and remember to stay tuned and you know i will i will come back to the cambridge exams and and analysis of celebrities english and and things like that so thank you thank you very much behave yourselves and until next week bye bye <laughs>